1: Because he was leaving office, and I'm leaving the office soon. <laughs> slight difference. Just, just a slight difference. Uh, so we've had so much
2: correspondence about the interview that we did with Rory Stewart. Hang on, have we started the podcast Yes, now? we have. Oh,
1: OK, yes. great. Hello, everybody. Yes, no, I started ages ago. Did you sure. just, just catch up? <laughs> I don't know what it is. Anyway, carry on. We have had. I agree with you. What? A lot of correspondence. Oh, okay. Sorry. Right.
2: Uh, we've had a lot I'm of back corris- in the room. <laughs> we've had a lot of correspondence. James was out last night, kids. We've had a lot of correspondence about our interview with Rory Stewart. He was in to talk about his memoir, Politics from Within. And uh, he's a person who just really divides opinion. So uh, I would say there were slightly more people who were a little bit annoyed with him. But there is a very vociferous and almost equal number of people who are annoyed with us. Yeah, which is kind of
1: how we like it, really.
2: And one of those people who's annoyed with us is no less than Dame Esther Ranson. No, just pause a moment. Let that one drop. Uh, that one drop, Dame Esther Ranson got in touch with us. She did.
1: She emailed Jane and Fee at Times So if Esther can get round to doing it, why haven't you? Uh, she writes as follows: I wish to protest. I write to protest. The last thing I want to do is offend by misreading her email. So we'll get it right. I write to protest. As an addicted fan of yours and also of Rory and Alistair, I couldn't care less whether the headcount of women they discuss on their The Rest is Politics podcast is high enough. They are obviously discussing politics, so they mention politicians relevant to the most crucial issues of the moment, the vast majority being men. So criticise the world for not electing enough women to powerful or influential roles if you want, but that isn't Rory's fault. And he did spend months telling us how wonderful Gillian Keegan is, perhaps over-enthusiastically now that she's Secretary of State for Education and has instantly brought the roof down by revealing her potty mouth. And also, by trying not to bring the roof down in schools at the very last moment, she's caused chaos in loads of families. So she certainly has been discussed. Uh, Yes, that's true. Um, And thank you, Esther, very much. I know that you are a regular listener. We're delighted to have you on board. And um, I mean, Esther, there is a good illustration of the fact that V and I really do mean it when we we don't expect people to agree with everything we do or say. That's the beauty of it all. Contact us anyway. We we just really want you to because often we're wrong. I'll correct that. Often I'm wrong. (laughs) Um, But what I would say, actually, and a number of people have made this point, that um, Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell have another podcast called Leading, and they have interviewed um, some very interesting female politicians in that podcast. And the one I did listen to uh, was one with Mary McAleese, who had been, she was the second female president of Ireland after Mary Robinson and if I'm honest I had slightly forgotten that Mary McAleese existed but it was a fascinating life story hers so I do recommend that actually that was a really really interesting interview uh, This one comes from
2: Sean male Listener number 136 in Berensfield uh, Dear V and Jane After your intriguing interview with Roy Stewart it appears there is a bias towards Old Etonians especially from Lady Jane of the Pool Towards Old Etonians Yeah I think so I think that's no, I think I think he means the opposite. Actually, uh, I personally know two former pupils from Eton, or as I like to tease them slough grammar Uh, one is an artist and has a small holding breeding rare pigs the other is an author and naturalist currently campaigning for the ever-dwindling numbers of curlew they're not power crazed megalomaniacs i mean they both sound lovely to be fair (laughs) don't start and i think the likes of eddie Redmayne, bear grills hugh Laurie, and matthew pinson would agree all former pupils good to have you back so uh thank you all of those and there are there are a couple of men actually gosh can i get to, hang on can i get to a man in time it's as if i said that phrase before here we are is adam <laughs> go have a go <laughs> <laughs> hello both uh, you know I hold you both in high regard, evidenced by all of the albeit unread correspondence. Well, Adam, now is your chance. Mm. Uh, I just need you to know I smarted a little tonight because I was made to feel I'm an intruder on your podcast. I'm a better person for listening to your insights, experiences and views. And even if you implied I might not be welcome, nothing will stop me listening. So there. Mm. Uh, well, Adam, I'd like to apologise for that because uh, we mentioned in the interview with Roy Stewart, uh, you know, that we do have men listening. Listening to this podcast and I referred to the fact that sometimes the men seem to be in on a joke with themselves which is that not very many blokes are listening hence the you know previous number 146 yeah. or whatever uh, but actually I would be horrified if that was interpreted as us not welcoming men at all. No that was never the case. Because that's not what I was trying to suggest and actually sometimes Uh, I think it is incredibly useful to listen. And I wish that I could do more of listening to men talk to men without them being conscious that women are listening because you learn so much more. And it's one of the huge problems of our time that men have stopped saying things that might be going through their heads for fear of being cancelled and castigated. And I think women have done the same too our conversation because it's what is it jane is it authentic
1: is it authentic um because it's usually it, unfortunately it, yes
2: yeah because you know it is an honest conversation mm. we are delighted if men are listening because you're bound to just learn an awful lot more than if we were being practiced and polished women and perhaps in previous iterations of our jobs we've had to be slightly more circumspect about what we say
1: Oh, yeah, def- so, well, definitely. So, all aboard, all aboard, all aboard. Yes. Um, I, I just wanted to mention Sue, who just says, have a heart. She is also referring to Rory Stewart. I think he's doing doing his best, in spite of acknowledged privilege, to make the world a better place. And for the record, all four of you, that's Off Air and the rest is Politics, have nursed me through the wee small hours of the last 12 months since my husband died from cancer. Uh, Sue, um, I'm really very pleased that Fee and I can just form just a a very tiny part of your cohort of support uh, if you like Uh, and we're very very happy to do so and uh, please keep listening for as long as it helps but I hope you're okay
2: yeah and can I just say hello to Sarah and to Sue Thomas and also to Jen we haven't got time we
1: haven't what's happened there I don't know what's happened I don't know, but the the money you spent on elocution lessons was a waste of money. We haven't got time to
2: read out every email, but uh, I'd just like you to know that I have read yours and we do take everything on board. So I think that is enough, Mayor Culper, that is enough
1: of the hair shirt, Mm -hmm. that is enough. Yes, absolutely. Right, Uh, I just wanted to also say that this is a very important email from Maria. Um, I manage two libraries in South Devon, and Anne Cleve's books are very popular. Uh, she's a big supporter of libraries, that's true, she is, isn't she? And independent bookshops. They were very happy to host Anne, launching the first two books in her Matthew Venn series. She was modest, friendly and generous with her time and she gave lots of advice to new authors. And she's with us again this Saturday to mark the third book in the series. That's the one I'm listening to right now. Um, it's called The Raging Storm. So Anne will be at Kingsbridge Library this Saturday at 11 in the morning. That's good to know. Also yeah. good to know that you've started the book club book. I have. That is Oyinka Braithwaite's My Sister the Serial Killer. And I'm not going to reveal anything about my views because I know people are absolutely on hooks to find out what I think.
2: September the 22nd is going to be our discussion about that book, uh, and we'd love it if you wanted to join in. So, uh, just to reiterate that the whole point of the book club is it's recommendations from all of you that we will read, uh, but we are going to try and be a bit varied, aren't we, in the type of books that we pick? Mm. So, this one is. It was, would you call it crime fiction? I don't know, it's not really. Not. not it's really. not really crime fiction, I mean... is it? it's about
1: a crime there is a great it's got a great title yeah it's just that's just a brilliant title it also has a brilliant cover and these things are not insignificant i think uh and it's also not that long so not insignificant here's a
2: question for you then as a lover of audiobooks does it make any difference to you at all what the little cover on the audiobook is when you're scrolling through no
1: you see i think the equivalent there would be the voice of the reader of the reader of the story. Yeah. Uh, And um, they do vary and some are brilliant and others are not so good. And uh, sometimes I will absolutely gallop through a book because I love the, I just love the reader's voice. Ben McIntyre's book about cold it's i listened to rather than read and ben mcintyre read it and he has an amazing voice mm. really lovely so i don't know it it just seems it does seem to vary a little bit
2: yes no for sure i no. tried listening to some lee childs and and whoever it was who's was reading that i just couldn't do it i no. just couldn't do it that's interesting it's a kind of americanized accent
1: um do you read books by Anne Patchett? Have you no. read The Dutch House? No. No, I haven't read it. But it, was, it was hanging around on uh, holiday last week. I didn't read it, but I did pick it up. But Anne Patchett's new book is called Tom Lake. And the reader of the audiobook of Tom Lake is Meryl Streep. Woof. I know. I mean, you'd book her. We don't know how much she cost.
2: Yeah. Have I told you I went to dinner with her? Yeah. <laughs> Right, uh, this one comes from Natasha. Thank you for reminding me of the classic tune Only You by Yazoo. So if you've had an earworm in your head for the last week that is Only You by Yazoo and you've only just managed to lose it, I'm
1: so sorry, it's back again. It's um, looking from the window above. Yes. Story of love. love. Yeah. Yeah,
2: that. It's been such a joy listening to it again after so long. The song that my music streaming algorithm went on to recommend after Only You was another classic, I Love You Always Forever by Donna Lewis. And when I hit play, I was immediately transported back to the way I felt just after my son was born, finally getting to cuddle him and stare at his perfect little face and feeling a wave of love wash over me. I'm now in my last month of pregnancy with my second child, and this song has been bringing me a real sense of lightness, joy and hopeful anticipation. I'm particularly grateful for this, as I'm also struggling with aching joints, brain fog and fatigue whilst also acknowledging the privilege of having a healthy pregnancy i'm hoping to listen to it during the birth to help get me through i thought i'd share this song recommendation for anyone else currently in the depths of pregnancy or who might just want reminding of what it feels like to fall madly and sweetly in love
1: isn't that a lovely email oh who's that from natasha natasha good luck natasha hope it all goes well huge amounts of luck Um, i'm really glad i haven't been heavily pregnant in the heat I don't think i'd have liked that very much oh i had an august baby oh yeah it was, it was um, just a hot summer it's very clammy yeah. yes <laughs> <It> was <laughs> hot. i was very careful to time only winter babies but then I'm an incredibly efficient person. Right, here's one from
2: Caroline. Dear Jane and Fee, Plymouth has the most beautiful saltwater art deco Lido, Lido. It did fall into disrepair, but fortunately underwent a massive restoration and reopened in two thousand and three. And it's about to have another three million pound investment to make it more accessible for the youth outreach water sports hub. Well, that's a amazing hub. a hub. There's a £3 million hub, Jane, in Plymouth. Uh, It sounds beautiful uh, and really lovely, and uh, that's just such a good news story because I know of lots of LIDO campaigners who are really, really struggling uh, to get the investment that they want and need, despite all these amazing facts about what a LIDO gives the community. Mm. It's a lot more, actually, than quite a lot of other leisure
1: and sport facilities, Jane. Mm. Uh, Well, I hope they... Good luck with it. Yes, I, I wish them well too. I'm afraid I can... When I think of Plymouth, and this isn't going to... Won't increase the audience to this podcast, but I once had to spend a lot of time in Plymouth. because it would... feature pancakes? The no, anecdote. it doesn't. Um, it... <laughs> No, but something nearly as good as pancakes, sex. Uh, I was filming a daytime television show, my very short-lived daytime television show. Mercifully, no footage is available. Don't go looking. And uh, for reasons I lost in the midst of time, it pauses podcast and looks. (laughs) It was made in Plymouth. So that meant I sort of weirdly took up residence in the Grand Hotel Plymouth. And one night I was woken up... Oh, CJ took up residence. <laughs> most people would say, I stayed in. No, I'm joking. It was it was a comedic turn of phrase. I did it for laughs.
2: OK, carry on, sorry.
1: Yeah, no, one night I was woken up by the most extraordinary sex noises coming from, I think it must have been, the room next door. And it was just... And it made me think... Have I actually ever had sex? Because that just... What what are they doing? I mean, honestly, I had absolutely no idea <laughs> that it was possible to be that noisy. And I'm afraid now, whenever I think of Plymouth, and I can name the year, but I won't, just in case it was you. And if it was, uh, just think on. Um, it was just absolutely extraordinary. Never happened to me before. And I've stayed in all sorts of hotels. But I, I've never, ever... Been woken up by that before? Well, <laughs> you weren't
2: expecting that, were you? I was. I was. To be honest, I was expecting a pastry-based anecdote <laughs> <laughs> because I've got quite used to those. I was not no. expecting a loud no? sex anecdote. Okay, at well all. No. I'm
1: just because I'm. And was d- everybody happy? I mean, everyone was having a good what, time, as sam- for what I could gather. Um, but it was. It was just. It's just one of those experiences. i afraid when you say, as soon as you said Plymouth, I'm just back, there. back there. There's nothing yeah. I can do about it. We all have those little triggers, don't we, where we're just catapulted straight back into an experience when we hear a word or a place name.
2: Well, I have exactly the same thing about St. Petersburg. I've only been there once. We went there to uh, film a, an episode of The Travel Show. and mm. We stayed in a really, really cheap hotel uh, down in the port, and we all emerged uh, a little bit shattered at breakfast the next morning. And slowly, uh, we worked our way around the table with everyone. Like, did you hear it? Yeah, yeah. I heard. It. Yeah, no, I heard it. And it was an, it was a place where sex workers would take their oh, clients. Oh and all of us had been awake all night, right, listening to some very loud performative antics. Going on, and it was a really, um it was a very horrible thing to listen to. Mm. Oh, God. Actually, well, it isn't great. No, it's not great. Well, no, but see, you were probably listening to two people just having a fun. I mean, maybe more. I don't know. <laughs>
1: Sounded like it might have been more than two, but look at what. Who am I, I, I to judge? I don't know. <laughs> no, but you,
2: hopefully, what were you were hearing people, was substantial. Yeah, but worse. it was just yeah. really, just awful, Ugh. actually. And we were all just, we were all shell-shocked by it. I'm actually. not surprised. I'm really really... shell-shocked. I've never been back to St. Petersburg. <laughs>
1: No. Okay. Right. Um, well, I mean, you uh, you are a part of this. So if you have anything I had to add to this particular conversation, it's Jane and Fee at times.radio. We did have a very funny email today from a bloke called Johnny who just said, because we, we've been talking about snoring on the radio, he just said, no, snoring is, it, I can't tolerate it. I've thrown a man out at four in the morning, I think he said, because of the snoring. I just won't tolerate it. It clearly is a matter of extreme seriousness for lots of people, isn't it? I'm just trying to move the conversation along from violent sex Noises heard in the night by the unsuspecting. Anyway, our guest today, Clive Myrie, came to Times Towers earlier today and caused quite a stir in the office. He did actually. In particular, one of our colleagues' grandmothers is a huge fan of his. So we asked Clive to give her a hello and he kindly obliged. Hey, Lillian, how are you doing? I hope you're well.
2: So Lillian is listening in a far-flung destination, I think, and she has uh, downloaded the Times app. She's got across all of the tech Uh just so she can get to you, Clive. Oh, Lillian, Lillian.
3: It's wonderful, wonderful that uh, you're hearing us loud and clear. And uh, it's a pleasure, I hope. Yeah, but I mean it's quite bold at the start show. of the interview. yeah, isn't yeah it? so
1: actually, yes, you might have lost her by the end of the interview. We yeah, don't know. I think she's right. had
3: enough already. Clive's too busy
1: to do any more shout-outs. Okay, that was the only one we're doing. <laughs> right, our guest is Clive Myrie, um, Bolton's greatest export apart from the others, uh, newsreader on the BBC, of course, frontline frontline reporter, which we'll also talk about, and the relatively new host of Mastermind. Mm. And you are from Bolton, but you do support Manchester City. Yeah. And can we just get that over
3: with? Yeah, why? good question. Yeah, yeah. Why? Why? Because when I was six or seven, I. Just just liked the sky blue. That was it. That literally was it. And I've been stuck with them ever since well, yes. for forty odd well, years. They
1: paid you back relatively recently. Well, um, relatively,
3: relatively recently, but much of my time as a supporter has been painful.
1: Okay, well, we'll uh, let you have
3: And that. I think the less said about that, the better.
1: Yeah. Okay. And um, does it bother you who the who, are, who the owners are?
3: Yeah, of course it does. Of course it does. But you know, when you caught up in the moment of of, of uh, success, it's um, you know those things fall away from from your mind actually. Uh, but it would be difficult, I think, to find any franchise in in any major sporting environment that doesn't have
1: some issue. Shall we put it that way? All right. So you're stuck with Manchester City. I'm stuck with them. Yeah. And they're stuck with you. Stuck
3: with the owners and all.
1: Right. Uh, Let's talk about you then. Let's talk about this book. Uh, You called it A Memoir of Love, Hate and Hope. Everything Mm. is Everything is the title. Um, So this is about much more than your career in broadcasting. It's about racism. It's about your family's experiences Mm -hmm. and your family's journey. And you had a great uncle who fought in the First World War. Now, before you started working on this book, did you know about him? No.
3: Right. had no idea.
1: So how did you find out? William
3: Runners, talking to my dad. Talking to my dad, having the kind of conversation... About our <clears throat> life, our history, the Myri legacy that I never had with him before, and knowing I wanted to write the book, um, and he's in his nineties now, he's ninety-four, um, we would be having these great conversations about stuff, about life, um, and I wanted to to paint a picture of what life was like for him in Jamaica before he came to, to Britain. Um, you know, trying to get out of him an explanation as to his sadness about living in Britain um, and his level of um, unfulfillment mm. as uh, as a worker, um, as, um, as an immigrant. Um, and all this stuff started coming out. And I was talking about... My Uncle uh, Rennie and my Uncle Cecil, um, Uncle Cecil being my dad's brother, and talking about his wartime experience. And he said, yeah, yeah and, uh, you know, my, uh, there was a great, you've got a great uncle who was in World War I. I said, "Why?" Well, I said, yeah, and he walked with a limp because he was injured. And he was um, a detective in Jamaica as well. And I instantly thought of Death in Paradise. Yeah. Um, I said, really? And he said, yeah, William Runners was his name, William Runners. And he was a big local sort of figure in the community. Um, in this area called Green Hills in um, western jamaica and uh, and he fought in world war one and he they would but they wouldn 't give him a gun my dad said they wouldn 't give him a gun well, they didn
1: 't trust they didn 't
3: trust, didn't, didn't trust them uh, they did give them guns, but they were old fashioned effectively musket type things um, so there was a level um, of self defense that they could employ in dealing with the enemy, but by and large, they were at the mercy of of the Germans because they weren 't given the equipment. Um, and I thought this is incredible, so
1: I put it in the book. And your, your dad, Norris, yeah, um, he does. He's a very interesting character because mm. he has a truly ambivalent relationship with Britain. He doesn't does, he? he does, and yeah. that, it's it's very nuanced, <laughs> oh, but word. it's really interesting. I mean, just tell us a bit about that.
3: Yeah, I mean, he was a very uh, carefree, good-looking guy in Jamaica. Um, you know, love the sunshine, love the heat, love the carefree life that he had. And he was his own boss, his own boss. He was a, a shoemaker, cobbler. And of course, he comes to freezing cold Britain, um, where there's racism and bigotry. Um, but also an alien environment, an industrial landscape. So imagine coming from the, you know, the beautiful sort of blue of the sky and the, the, the sort of sandy beach and the greens and the, you know, the, purples and yellows, the vibrancy of the Caribbean, and you come into grey Lancashire. That was a discombobulation. That was a shock. Um, And then also the realisation that he couldn't really be carefree or as carefree as he was before. He couldn't be the happy-go-lucky guy. He was now having to bring up a family in an environment that he didn't really like. Um, He was somebody else's employee. Um, He had to follow rules. And he's never he's never really acclimatized and got used to all of that. And in fact, I said to him just a couple of nights ago, I said, you know, the book. He was congratulating me on the book, and he was saying you've got everything in it you wanted. And I said yes, and I said, I do chronicle your unhappiness. Um, and uh, he said, yeah, well, it was it was hard. It was it was tough for me. Um, so yeah.
1: Um, it's it's good in a way that you're you're still able to have these conversations because yes. they're not comfortable conversations, are they? No,
3: really? they're not, and they're actually they're, they're conversations that we're having now because we're getting on so much better than we ever did. Not that we were sort of um, having arguments or stuff, but we just never were in the sit- kind of environment or situation where it would foster that freedom of expression and discussion and and conversation because he was quite a distant father when we were growing up.
1: Now, in the book, you say that actually neither of your parents could really... Your mum is Lynn, by the way. Yeah. Couldn't point to absolute examples of racism they have been put through. Well, they they didn't want to. They didn't want to. But but your mum had been a teacher and her qualifications were not deemed to be good enough when she got here. Yes. And that must have really rankled.
3: Yes, it it did rankle. It did rankle. It's, you know, Andrea Levy writes about it brilliantly in Small Island. You know, you've got Hortense, my mum, uh, you know, teaching in Jamaica, uh, feeling that they have a status in society and being a teacher was such a big thing in the Caribbean because, of course, you know, education Education for the colonised, the black people, was very basic um, uh, during colonialism. And, and as a result, you know, a black teacher was seen as a big deal. And so there was a status there that my mum had, and all of a sudden that status was taken away from her in moving to the United Kingdom. Um, so that was difficult. But they were also told that they were equal citizens. That was the point of the British Nationality Act of forty eight, And it was an experiment that had not been done And uh, a a, a situation that had not been established since the Roman Empire, that an empire said every single member of that empire is equal. You're all citizens. Mm. And that was why you had the Windrush, Empire Windrush, come over. Well,
1: you know, until I read this book, and I should have known this, and I didn't, and I'm just going to admit it, I hadn't realised that so many British people had left Britain uh, after the war that, in fact, Britain turned to the Caribbean because... Of our other people actually becoming immigrants themselves you, it's, and
3: going abroad—it's a dirty little secret.
1: Well, it's it, a dirty is it? Is that secret. how you see it? I mean, I was amazed I do, that I, I didn't do. know.
3: I do see it that way because I, what I think most people believe they know is that there were shortages of manpower yeah. because of the war. I knew that. So actually, you had, but I didn't war, know why. yeah, exactly, war yeah. brides, and some people might have been killed. Guys who would have been on building sites and whatever reconstructed Britain, they were killed in Germany or wherever. Okay, does that take out enough people of the population to cause a serious manpower shortage? No. What causes the manpower shortage is 2 million Brits going to Canada or Australia or New Zealand, and you cannot blame them. That's one thing I hope I get across in the book, that they did not want to hang around Russian book Britain. Who would? you know coventry was bombed to bits the east end was completely flattened you know it was there was there was starvation there was hunger it was difficult yes britain won the war but really it was on its knees, owed America a whole ton of money that through the Lend-Lease programme, that it was Tony Blair who was the Prime Minister who paid that off. So that's how poor and knackered and broken Britain was. And it was Churchill who said, don't leave, we need you guys. We don't want you to become £10 bombs, although they didn't exist then, but he was making the point that you need to stay behind and rebuild the country. But Britain was knackered and those people were knackered and so they left. So there was a shortage. But the key thing here, is that the Nationality Act, under that, making everyone in the the empire uh, citizens, equal citizens, the British didn't think black people would come. They thought it would be Aussies and Canadians and Kiwis who would come. And then when it turned out the empire windrush was full of black people, 11 Labour MPs had a late-night meeting with Clement Ackley to try to turn the ship around. Because they were convinced that Britain's character would change. And it has. It's become multicultural Britain as mm. a result. Uh, and I think that's a good change, but some people don't agree.
1: Well, um, the fact that your parents were reluctant to acknowledge or didn't feel able to acknowledge the racism they'd been, um, they'd been made to put up with, how did they feel about you being really quite upfront about your experience of it?
3: They understand it they understand why I felt it was important to put that in because there is this understanding I think or belief among some people and in fact it's been it's been uh made clear to me in one interview that I've already done that people might be shocked that my family have been caught up in the Windrush scandal. That was your half brother's? That was my two half brothers, Lionel and Peter. That, you know, Clive Myrie, for some reason, he's caught up in this. Like it's something that only happens to poor people or people who aren't famous or people who haven't achieved anything or you, do you know what I mean? And I wanted to get across that actually racism happens to everybody. Um, Trevor McDonald's family, if they came over in 1948 under that act and in the years after 48, He'd have his folks would have been in the same situation. Lenny Henry, Moira Stewart, I don't know. Name a black person. If they came over under the 48 Act, they could have been caught up in the winter scandal. And that was the point. And I wanted to get that that across and also get across the fact that, yeah, I might have achieved a few things in life, but that does not stop people using the N word in correspondence and emails and tweets and whatever. It does not stop it at all.
1: Let's just sort of talk a little bit about that, because that shouldn't be happening. And I suppose I might have thought that since you started talking about it in public, that it might have stopped, but it still hasn't. That's interesting why you think that might have happened. Maybe because I'm a lily-livered pinko who hopes that people will reform or just not not behave in
3: that way. No, you can't legislate for individuals. Um, What you can do is try to get rid of the structural disadvantages and the structural inbuilt racism that exists. And I think as a society, Britain is on its way to trying to sort of deal with a lot of that, no question. But individuals, yeah, there's always going to be a loon out there. Always going to, for whatever reason. You cannot legislate for for someone feeling a certain way about another individual, um, and you know I I don't know how it's education is what's going to help people like that. Um, but those people used to wind me up. Now I just have unbridled pity because they're just sad losers. Do you reply and that's how to I people? Feel. I said do sometimes. Yeah, I do. I and what do you sometimes. Say? I well, so so one guy. One guy got in touch, I, I did a, a, a profile, there was a profile of me in the Times, and he got in touch and he said, you know, I, my country has changed and it's disgraceful. You know, I sort of walk around parts of London and it's, it's just horrible. And I see these black people out smoking dope and, you know, you just, and people like you, you know, you should never have been allowed in here. Never been allowed it. First of all, I was born here. Uh, and I made that clear to this um Gentleman. chap. <laughs> I was told I couldn't swear on it. I was told I couldn't swear. So uh, so I made that clear. Uh, and, and, uh, and the implication was always, from some of these people, that you were given the opportunity. You've been given everything that you have. Not that you weren't, not that I earned it, not that I worked my balls off for the last 30 years as a journalist, you know, on occasion getting shot at or whatever. No, none of the, no, you, yeah, you know, you, you've been given everything and you're turning against this country. How can you say you're ashamed of Britain because of the Windrush scandal? I am ashamed of Britain because of the Windrush scandal. No question about it. Um, and I made that clear to him. And I also, also spelt out the, um, the fine um, print within the 1948 Nationality Act that meant that we were all citizens. Uh, and as a result, um, we didn't just wander over here. We were invited over here to help rebuild this country. And I made the point that I made to you, Jane, that two million white Britons left... So if we hadn't come over or my folks had not come over, Coventry wouldn't have been rebuilt. The NHS would be short of staff, as it is now. British Rail wouldn't be running, etc., etc., etc. And then I said, thank you very much. Goodbye.
0: Mm. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalised card from Moonpig. an interesting
1: email here Clive about PTSD which Fee and I were talking about mm. actually before you came in and this is because in your book I mean you've been in some truly terrifying situations there's a a chapter that references a trip you had to Borneo which mm. was truly terrifying yeah. and about which I knew nothing mm. uh, but you do say that you don't think you've ever had it and this emailer says I don't know what Clive says about it but PTSD is much rarer in broadcast journalists because they work in teams and have the ability to share with each other in real time. I should mm. say that's from our colleague, actually, Catherine Philp, of yeah. The Times. Yeah. So Yeah, that's that true? really interesting. Yeah. Um,
3: probably true, actually. Um, I know that um, uh, after the f- two and a half weeks that we were in Ukraine together for the, first, for the uh, invasion of the war, um, we could have flown directly back. But the BBC said, no, fly via Romania, have two days to decompress, and just think about what you've been through uh, and then fly on back to London. And it was a brilliant idea, actually. Um, And there is um, counselling that you can get here at the BBC, uh, at the BBC, (laughs) <laughs> um yes careful <laughs> um, careful steady um, and, and so there are there are there are mechanisms there to 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 help you um, having been through some of these some of these horrible experiences, but I say in the book that images stay with you, there will be instances that you 'll never forget. Um, but I haven't been in the position where I've been unable to function, to do my daily job or do what I would normally want to do as a result of those recollections. So I don't think I've got PTSD. It, it hasn't been diagnosed. Um, and there haven't been situations that have cropped up that have made me feel that I need to get it sort of checked out. Not yet, anyway.
2: Do you feel that you might have witnessed some colleagues who are actually rather addicted to trauma in exactly the same way that, as viewers, you know, you can be pulled into seeing more and more of the darker side of the world? You almost don't know when to stop yourself. Yeah,
3: I I think that is um, a danger and that is a possibility. What I've found over the years is that I've actually become um, more sensitive to um, the pain of others. Um, I haven't become desensitised in the way that perhaps one might think um, uh, the situation could develop. Having seen more and more of these horrible things, I've actually become more acutely um, sensitive to people, other people's pain. Um, and, you know, as recently as, as the COVID pandemic, you know, having covered wars and conflict for 25-odd for years, all of a sudden COVID comes along, I'm talking to uh, a woman who is having to deal with body after body after body in the morgue of a hospital and she's got me in tears and the cameraman in tears and the producer in tears. We're all The, the four of us were gushing.
2: I thought your reporting of COVID, though, was extraordinary, Clive, and I know you won an award for it. I'm not the only person to say that. Uh, but it's because you brought something of the tone of a war zone to yeah. our domestic tragedy and yeah. it was the right tone, actually.
3: I, I'm... I'm it's, it's kind of you to, to say all that. And it was interesting having covered wars and been in so many morgues around the world and seen so many dead bodies, and yet we're in the middle of a, of, a, of a horrible situation, the like of which we haven't seen for 100 years since the flu epidemic. And yet we're not talking to the people at the sharp end who are actually having to deal With the dead. I mean, at that stage, I think it must have been about 90,000 dead or maybe just over 100,000. That was more than the civilian dead in Britain in World War II. Hmm. And yet we weren't talking to the grave diggers. And and I couldn't believe it. So I went to my producer, Sam. I said, look, I want to get into the hospital. I want to get into the morgue in the hospital. And I expected him to come back and say it's not going to happen because I'd never seen it, Right. I'd never Yet I'd been in morgues in Mexico with the drug gangs and morgues in Sarajevo, yet for some reason we were not reflecting that side of the story in our coverage. And there's a prudishness that Brits have about death and so on and so forth. I understood all that. But still, this is unprecedented. Once in 100 years, how is the morgue person dealing with this? So I said, we've got to get in the morgue, expecting him not to be able to do it. He comes back within a day and says he had the love used to go down. I said, really? They said, yeah, I said, but we've never seen it before. They said, because no one's ever asked. <laughs> no yeah. one's ever asked. Can L- you believe
1: that? Listening to you speak, I mean, your passion is obvious and it, it's compelling. Aren't you, I'm going to put this in the nicest possible way, aren't you bored just reading the news? <laughs> you, I mean, you you really are a reporter, aren't you? You want to be oh, out there. Oh,
3: no, there, there is, you know, people have, to be, people have to be comfortable in turning on the telly and inviting you into their home every night at 10 o'clock or 6 o'clock or 1 o'clock. Um... And so there is, there is a skill and there is an art to that. And I would never belittle that. But at the same time, yes, I am a reporter. And uh, what's fantastic about the situation I have at the moment at the BBC um, is that I can do both. And as long as I can continue to do both, then I'm I'm a I'm a happy bunny.
1: Well, you're not just doing that. You've done your show about Italy, yeah, uh, and you're doing Mastermind. I mean, at the moment, if a question's asked at the BBC, the answer is Clive Get Myrie. Myrie. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, it's not Cl- a bad time. Clive to view, Myrie or Amor Rajan. <laughs> well, you said that. I'm not allowed to say that. Uh, I
3: love Amol. What are you talking about? No, we love Amol. What, what
1: have you turned down? <laughs> strictly, obviously. Yes. Yeah. Strictly. yeah.
3: Yeah, I'm a celebrity. Yeah. Turn yeah. that down. Um, yeah. I just don't know if you'd take me seriously with me in my Cuban heels, you know, a spangly shirt down to the navel, hair protruding. No, oh, I'd give um, it a whirl, class. Tight work, pants. Like. You know, I don't know if you'd take me seriously next time I was, you know, I don't know, in Ukraine Sounds or outside me. the White House. <laughs>
1: I think. Oh, I'd, go on. Yeah. All right. right, then. He'll do the Christmas one. That's it in translation. Uh, just very, very quickly, um, you got personal on the night that Obama was elected, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I did. And I, I remember that. I remember seeing it and I remember thinking, oh, yeah. I wonder what they'll think about that yeah. back at BBC Towers. Yes, it's um, funny. Because you couldn't, I mean, you tell me, could you just not resist it? Was it simply too much for you? Was it the right thing to do or was it the wrong thing to oh, do?
3: Oh, I mean, bottom line was I was in Morehouse College, historic black college in atlanta crucible of the civil rights movement they just elected a black man to the white house uh in an area that was had been segregated um for 250 years and uh, i was overcome with emotion and um david dimbleby on the election special he came to me and he said clive paint the scene of what's going on and i did and then i said at the end of it i said i have to say david at this moment in history for me as a black man to be here at here is just incredible, Clive Murray. Thank you very much. And I put down the microphone. I thought, Oh my god, I've crossed the line, I've crossed the line, I've put myself into the story. We're not supposed to do that, you know. It's not about us, um, it's about the people you're talking about. And uh, and then I put down the microphone, and I looked over and I saw the network correspondent for ABC News, great guy. And he was broadcasting live to I don't know 20 30 million people, and he was live and he was in tears live on the telly and I thought I have not crossed any line <laughs> at all no way uh, and I did feel bad after I'd done it but after seeing Steve I thought that's probably one of the best things I did actually
1: Live, Myrie and everything is everything is out tomorrow and Mystic Garve predicts it'll be a hit What do you think?
2: Well, he was saying, wasn't he, in the studio, that this is the belter week for publishing. Uh, September the kind of 13th, 14th is key in the date, isn't it? Uh, Because then you get the run up to Christmas and everyone's back in the office and you come back from your holidays. So he is up against some very stiff competition. I mean, let's face it, our week this week Mm. uh, on the show is dominated by exactly that publishing week. Rory Stewart, Clive Myrie and on Thursday, big old Peston. Robert Peston's in.
1: Yes, yes, he is. He's 63. Is he now? Yes, he is. Gosh, what's his secret? We'll ask tomorrow. Um, Actually, we probably will because um, I mean it'll be Thursday by then. So
2: sometimes I really, really, really want to chop his hair. Chop his hair. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, Jane. Chop his hair. It's just a bit too unkempt for me, if I can be honest. And if he was in a different area of journalism, I might forgive him. Mm. You know, if he was doing some kind of a food journalism, I think it'd be okay. But for financial journalism and politics, Jane. I don't think you
1: should allow it to grow below your neckline. No, I mean, he's, he's not far off man bun territory at yeah. times. Yeah. OK, well, we'll have a good look at him tomorrow and we'll assess. Right. Uh, thank you very much indeed for being a part of whatever this is. We're extremely grateful and um, we'll be back wherever you are and whenever suits you, but shortly. Weirdo. <laughs> Did it. Elite listener status for you for getting through another half hour or so of our whimsical ramblings. Otherwise known as the hugely successful podcast Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. We miss the modesty class. (laughs) Our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler, the podcast
2: executive producer. It's a man, it's Henry
1: Tribe. Yeah, he's an executive. Now if you want even more, and let's face it, who wouldn't, then stick Times Radio on at 3 o'clock Monday until Thursday every week and you can hear our take on the big news stories of the day as well as a genuine Genuinely interesting mix of brilliant and entertaining guests on all sorts of subjects.
2: Thank you for bearing with us,
1: and we hope you can join
2: us again on Off Air very soon.
0: Mom deserves better than a drugstore card.